Thank you, Jerry. Am I on? I am on. Well, last week we had problems with the microphone and the, the microphone hissed and cracked and everything and uh, we changed the wire, so we hope that doesn't happen. But this week I've been down with a sinus, not infection, but just sinus drainage. So if I start coughing like crazy and it sounds like I'm dying, I'm really not. I really feel better when I get finished coughing. It's just you will feel quite as good. But anyway, I just want you to know, I hope I don't do that, but it's been a rough week for us. The gang of eight from Austin has now gone back home. Uh, and, uh, and during that time, I was not feeling too well, so I didn't uh, have a lot of much fun with the kids as uh, Lynn did, but uh, they're gone and it was good to see them. Tomorrow uh, I begin to teach again at Criswell College, so that's the beginning of the school year. It seems like it gets earlier every year. I don't understand that, but anyway. So that's tomorrow, so uh, be praying for me. My first class is 1.30 tomorrow, and I'll be teaching a class on the Gospels and the Book of Acts. And that's an introductory class, so I, I deal with all the critical issues. Not a survey, not a verse-by-verse -verse survey, but I deal with how, how those Gospels were put together. Where did Luke get his information? Remember Luke went out and did research for his information. Where in the world did he find it? So it deals with all those kinds of issues. So that begins tomorrow. Now our text today is Psalm 110. So take your Bibles and we'll turn to Psalm 110. <coughs> And I don't know, Jimmy, Jimmy Street, when uh, Gary said that told you about the parachute and it not opening up, I don't know what he was trying to say to you. <laughs> it sounded sort of like a Donald Trump thing about the Second Amendment or something. Did you hear that kind of comment? I don't know what that meant. We have to interpret that. I'm not sure what that kind of thing said. Anyway, we are in Psalm 110. So Psalm 110 has, a, has prophetic significance. Uh, for the church, because it's quoted, that Psalm 110 is quoted 24 times in the New Testament, more than any other Psalm. And those exact words right there in verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, those exact words or that idea also appears in our major creeds. For example, the Apostles' Creed talks about Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he, what? Sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So that thought is right there. From whence, that's the old King James way of saying it, from whence he shall come to do what? Judge the quick and the dead. Notice that he's going to reign until God makes his enemies his footstool. So these, this is a very important passage. Now, originally it was probably applied to King David. It was probably a coronation psalm when the king uh, takes the throne and he becomes God's right-hand man on earth. But by the time the early church is reading this, they are interpreting it and reading it messianically. They're reading it uh, as applying to Jesus Christ. Okay. So that's why it's quoted 24 times and it's applied 
to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That's how we're going to look at it this morning. Okay? So we're going to see how it's applied to Jesus Christ. Let me just show you one place where it's used in the New Testament, if you don't mind, before we actually go through these verses. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. This is the very first sermon preached on the day of Pentecost. So I imagine the content would be very important. Notice what Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Turn to Acts chapter 2, and we will go down to verse 29. Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. So here's what he said. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that's King David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, foretelling the future, therefore being a prophet, verse 30, knowing that God had sworn with an oath, very important word, to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, that he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, that's David foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we're all witnesses. Therefore, watch this, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. That would be the tongues of the miracles. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Very first sermon, he quotes Psalm 110. It's quoted 23 other times in the New Testament. It is absolutely the backbone of Christology. It tells us who Jesus is. He is God's right hand man. It tells us where Jesus is. He is at God's right hand. That he's exalted. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And in that position, he has certain powers and certain responsibilities. So let's look back at Psalm 10. And we're going to interpret this psalm prophetically in light of Jesus the Messiah. And here's how we're, going to, how we're going to divide the psalm. Verses 1 through 3. The Messiah is the exalted king. Verses 1 through 3. Messiah as the exalted king. Verses 4 through 7. Messiah is installed as the priest. 1 through 3, king, 4 through 7, priest. Now, that psalm is, we're dividing that psalm exactly in half. You say, well, how can that be? Verses 1 through 3, only three verses. 4 through 7, four verses. But in the Hebrew, each section has exactly 74 syllables in the Hebrew language. And it has a... So that's how it's supposed to be read. It's a two-part psalm. Okay? So let's look at the Messiah exalted as the heavenly king. So let's look at verse 1. Now this is David speaking prophetically. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my, your enemies, your footstool. Now, first of all, I want you to notice the word Lord. First word, L, capital O, capital R, capital D. 
This is Yahweh. Uh, another way of saying this is the great I am. So here's how what David would be saying. The great I am said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a prophecy. God speaks. It's an oracle. He's speaking through King David. King David is relaying this information to us. So there are two lords in verse 1, aren't there? The first lord is Yahweh, or God. <coughs> Excuse me. I need to get some water. <coughs> I'm not dying. Don't feel sorry for me. <coughs> so the first is Lord, all caps. That's David's God. The second word, Lord, in verse 1, notice, is small o, small r, small d. You see that? <clears throat> this is David's master, and this refers to the Messiah. Okay? David's superior. So the Lord, that's Yahweh God, the great I Am, said to David's superior, who we know from the New Testament, is Jesus. It's the Messiah. <clears throat> he gives him instructions. Look what he tells him to do. I want you to watch the verbs in this verse, okay? In these next couple of verses. He says, sit at my right hand. So David's Lord, his superior, the Messiah, sits at God's right hand, which is a position of authority. That's why we get our concept of, you know, somebody's right hand man. It's the person who they depend upon. So the Messiah is co-ruler with God. He's his viceroy. He's his, uh, like his vice president who does his bidding. So Messiah does the bidding of Yahweh. In this case, the Father. Now the word sit there. The person who sits is superior to the person who stands. Servants stand and serve the king who does what? He sits. He sits down on his throne. So again, this is a, is it, by the way, when he says sit, is there a throne in heaven, for example, where Jesus sits? Is God on one throne and Jesus is on another throne? Uh, no, this is all figurative language. But it means something. It means that Jesus is God's right hand man. He's the person that the Father gives delegated authority to, to act on his behalf. If you think that God the Father sits on the throne and Jesus is in his right hand, you've got some problems. Why is that? Is God omnipresent? Yeah. He's not located in one spot. So Bob was talking about metaphors and things like that. We're dealing with this kind of figurative language. The point is that he has given Jesus Christ authority. He's delegated authority to Jesus Christ. Look how long he is to rule on behalf of the Father. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. <clears throat> this phrase, until I make your enemies your footstool, is just another way of saying until your enemies are conquered. You know, this is a concept of a person conquering, a, one king conquering another king, and he puts his foot on his neck. And he's sort of like the guy's footstool. So this speaks of the enemies being conquered. Okay? It's a sign of sub, a subjugation. One, the loser is you know, a subject to the winner. And so how long is he to rule? Until 
I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, now look at the extent of his rule. The extent of his rule. That's how long he's the rule. How long does he rule? Until what? The enemies are his footstool. Okay. Where is he now? He's in heaven, sitting at the right hand. He is in the position of authority. How long will he stay there? Until his enemies are defeated. Right? Now look at this. The extent of his rule. Look at verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod, some translations say the scepter, which speaks of the king's authority. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Some translations say the Lord shall extend. Anybody's translation say that? Just a couple of them over here. The Lord shall extend the rod of your authority, of your strength out of Zion. So it's going to extend beyond the city of Jerusalem. That's what Zion is. Now notice the verbs. I told you to notice the verbs. In verse 1, God says He'll do something. He says, I will make your enemies your footstool. You see that? I make. That's God's doing. In verse 2, God does something else. Look at what it says. The Lord shall what? Sin. Do you see that? Or extend. See? So the Lord does two things there. First of all, He will make Christ's enemies His footstool. And second of all, He will extend or send His rod way beyond the city of Jerusalem. Now watch this. This next phrase in verse 2. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now we have two commands that God has given Command number one is found in verse one. Here's what it is. Sit. Right? Command number one. Command number two is found in verse two. What is it? Roll. You see that? So God does two things and he commands two things. God's going to do two things and he commands two things of the Messiah. This is all symbols of the Messiah's authority. Okay. Next, God speaks of the Messiah or the king's supporters. Now look at this. His supporters. Your people. You see that? Now he's moving away from the Messiah to the people. Your people. And look at the end of verse 3. Your youth. Do you see that? Your people. Your youth. Okay? So we think that these are two groups or maybe they're the same group. But we will look at that now in verse 3. So, your people could be simply the general population. God's followers, Christ's followers. The youth could be a younger generation. Okay? But the context, look at the context. Your people shall be volunteers when? In the day of your power. That phrase, in the day of your power, is used other times in the Old Testament to refer to the times of war. To the time of war. So, there's going to be a war. Guess what? Enemies are going to be... The Messiah is going to put his foot on the neck of his enemies. The enemies are going to be defeated. There's going to be a war. And guess what? Your people, what will they do? They shall what? Be volunteers in the time of war. In the beauty of holiness. You know, raid in holiness, maybe even uh, military gear, holy military gear. This is a holy war they're fighting. 
from the womb of the morning, meaning from day number one, when it all begins, you have the dew of your youth. Now, if that's a second group, what it means is, this is a very one of the hardest verses in the passage to interpret, it means dew, what is dew? When you get up, what do you see? Dew. Where is dew? It is everywhere. In this case, dew represents abundance. So look what it says here. If you think of it in that way, everywhere you look, you have the dew, the abundance, everywhere you look, you have the abundance of your youth. So they also are going to be fighting on behalf of the Messiah. They're going to be part of this holy war. Okay, so this is what we see so far. This is how the early church in the first century would have interpreted this psalm. So that, look at verse 4. And now we're going to move to this concept of the Messiah being the priest. Okay. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. He's made a promise and he won't change his mind. Now, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he said, The Lord took an oath. Remember that? I said that's an important word to remember in Acts 2. The word oath. Guess what we have right here? The Lord has taken an oath. Do you see that? So, look what it said. He has taken an oath. He has sworn. He will not change his mind. And here is his promise. You are a what? Now this is very unusual for a king to be a priest. In Old Testament times, kings are not priests. Under the law of Moses, the priest and the king were two separate offices. They came from two separate tribes. And the king came from the tribe of Judah. The priest came from the tribe of Levi. And never the two shall mix. That's the law of Moses. But this is a different kind of king. This is a king who is also a priest. Now watch what it says. Verse 4. You are a priest. What kind of priest? Look at this. You are a priest forever. An everlasting priest. Under the law of Moses, Aaron and his sons and their sons and their sons were priests. How long were they priests? A lifetime. Until they died. And then guess what? No longer a priest. But this priest, this Messiah priest, is going to be a priest for how long? Forever. Eternity, forever. So that's the difference. Okay? Now there's something else different about this priest. Look at the end of verse 4. You'll be a priest forever according to the order of Aaron. Is that what it says? No. According to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek lived prior to the law of Moses. And when God chose him to be a priest, he had a forever priesthood. Melchizedek means, it's very interesting, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. But he was also a priest. King of righteousness, but he was also a priest. He was the, he was the king of Salem, Scripture says. 
Today we call it Jerusalem. Messiah is going to be a king, and he's going to be a king over Jerusalem. He's in the heavenly Jerusalem now, he'll be a king of America. So, Melchizedek was a eternal priest, but he was also a king of Salem. Abraham just came from war. And he meets Melchizedek on the road, and Melchizedek gives him something in Genesis 14. You know what it is? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. That's what a priest is. Does that sound familiar? And in return, Abraham gives him a tithe. He gives the priest a tithe. In that same passage in Genesis 4, same verse, another king is mentioned. He's a bad king who tries to influence Abraham. He's called the king of Sodom. So we have the king of Jerusalem, the king of Salem, who's also a priest, and you have the king of Solomon, and they're both fighting for Abraham's allegiance. When you go home this afternoon, read that passage in Genesis 14. So what we have here is Messiah is made a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, not like a Levitical priest. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. This passage is mentioned over and over again in Hebrews that Jesus, the Messiah, was also been made a priest. Now we come to something very interesting. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. We have this prophetic declaration. Now watch this. David is now speaking to God. At least that's how it appears. It could be confusing, but I think that's how it appears. Look what he said. The Lord. Now look at how that's spelled. L, small o, small r, d, right? That's not Yahweh. That's David's superior. That's the Messiah. And he's speaking to God, and he says this. The Lord, that would be Messiah, is where? At your right hand. And that's what we saw in verse 1. Messiah is at his right hand, right? Now watch this. He, we think that's Messiah, shall do this. Number one, shall. Number one, shall. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. Whose wrath? In your Bible, is there a capital H there? Some of your Bibles have a capital H? When God decides to send out his wrath, here's what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to execute kings. He's going to be, he's going to be the instrument of judgment upon the nations. And he's going to execute kings. That's shall number one. Look at shall number two. We think that's going to all happen in what we call the Battle of Armageddon. Look at shell number two. Number six. He shall judge among the nations. He shall judge among the nations. He's going to be God's instrument of judgment through war upon the nations of the world. Now, one of the earlier Psalms deals with this. And I'm just going to read it to you, and I think that you'll recognize this Psalm. This is Psalm 2. Listen to what it says. Remember what this verse said. He shall judge nations. Now watch this. Why do the nations rage? Psalm 2. Just listen to it. 
and the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one, that's Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds and pieces and cast away their cords from us. We don't want these guys ruling over us. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. We just saw that. Psalm 110. He will speak to them in his wrath. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king, God says, on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash those nations to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Be reconciled to the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. That's Psalm 2, and Psalm 110 basically says the same thing right here. There's a constant theme throughout the Psalms that one day there's going to be a time of judgment and God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. So that's the second shall in verse 6. He shall judge the nations. Now look at shall number 3. He shall fill the places, some translations say the bodies, or, or valleys, with dead bodies. A war has taken place, and guess what? There are dead bodies strewn all about. And this Messiah has won this end-time battle. And that's what this is describing. Uh, some people say this is the Valley of Armageddon. It shall number four, in verse six. He shall execute the heads of of many countries. He shall execute the heads of many countries. The leaders of the countries. Some translations say he will wound the heads of those countries. You know, a head wound is a mortal wound, right? Uh, and these are these heads of countries and they're all going to be defeated by the Messiah. They're going to come against him, but he will defeat them. They have a head over them, by the way. Anybody know who the head of the nations is? Serpent. Satan. Genesis 3.15 says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that's when all this is happening. And his forces, basically, and his nations that he controls shall be defeated. And then look at this last shall. Shall 7. Shall number 5 in verse 7. It says this. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. The Messiah will, this is all figurative language, it's like after the war is over, he's going to take a nice big drink and get refreshed. And therefore, he shall lift up the head. He shall lift up his head, basically. And that is this prophetic scenario that we have in Psalm 110. Now I want to show you 
a similar thing in the New Testament, how this is uh, mentioned. So go over to 1 Corinthians 15. This would be the second of 24 times that this concept is used. 1 Corinthians 15. And look at verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. See if this doesn't fit in with Peter's sermon on Pentecost and Psalm 110. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. He's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Godly cult has fallen asleep. Guess what? Christ has been risen. He's the first fruits. Others will follow, including him and all those of our friends that have passed on throughout the years. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. That's when we're going to be raised from the dead. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. You see that? He's won total victory. Why? Look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. you see that? This is Paul basically using Psalm 110 to explain what's going to happen in the end times. He shall reign in verse 25 so he puts all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is what? Never be dead. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says, and that means the Father's put all things under him, but when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he, that's God the Father, who put all things under him, is accepted. Christ doesn't rule over God the Father. God the Father rules over Christ. So that's what that says. Now look at the last verse, verse 28. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, that's the Father, who put all things under him. That in the end, God gave me all in all. That's Paul's end time scenario. So just go back to Psalm 110 as we finish this out and see if this doesn't make sense. So that's the scenario. That's Psalm 110. The New Testament writers fill in the blanks. They say that Jesus is this one who is the promised Messiah. He died on the cross under punishment following. He was raised three days later. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he reigns as a royal, as a king, priest. A royal priesthood, he has. Kingly priesthood. And he will reign in that position from a heavenly position. We call this the already kingdom. It's already here because he reigns. And he will reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And then he comes back and sets up the kingdom of God. And that will be in the future. This is a very important concept. So verse 7 says, He shall drink from the brook by the wayside and be refreshed, and therefore he will lift up his head. Now what in the world is that all about? He'll lift up his head. Uh, it's simply a way of saying that he has uh, won the victory. 
He lifts his head up, and where are the other people's heads? They're under his feet. Very similar thing, and I'm not going to turn there, but a very similar thing is found in Psalm 3. And we all have a song that we sing in church. And some of you may remember this. Uh, it says, But you, O Lord, are a shield to me. Remember that song? My glory and the lifter of my head. See, the lifter of my head. Christ lifts his head in victory. And guess what? His victory becomes our victory. We share in that victory. And in a sense, we win that battle with him. His victory becomes our victory. And his kingdom is our kingdom. Because we have sided with Christ, not the king of Sodom. <laughs> we have sided with the king of Salem, uh, not with Satan, who is the power behind all the other friends. So Psalm 24 says, Lift up your eyes, or lift up your heads, O you gates, and be ye lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? If you want to know who the King of Glory is, right there is the King of Glory. Psalm 110. And also the other verses in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the King of Glory. Next week we'll deal with Psalm 110. Lord, I thank you for this word. It's a word of hope. It's a word of aspiration. It's a word that brings light into a world of darkness. Uh, we think of the situation right now and how things are absolute turmoil, topsy-turvy, the world around. And we are in a world of darkness. And we could be very, very depressed if we had not passages like this that lets us know that you are indeed in charge. Christ is reigning now, already, whether we realize it or not, he is doing the work, and you are making his enemies his footstool. Whether we can see it or not, it's happening. And one day there will be total victory. And the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of Christ, and you are all known. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.